Welcome to Be Brave at Work, a podcast devoted to helping you take the next step in your workplace. Each week, we'll be talking with real people with real stories about things they have not said or done or have said or done in their workplace that required bravery. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. This is Ed Everts, and I'm the founder and president of Excellius Leadership Development. Welcome to Be Brave at Work, a podcast devoted to helping you take the next step in your workplace. I hope you'll listen to our past podcast conversations, and if you'd like to hear past episodes, go to BeBraveAtWork.com, subscribe to our podcasts, and learn some valuable lessons about bravery at work. My new book, Drive Your Career, Nine High-Impact Ways to Take Responsibility for Your Success, is now available in paperback, on Kindle, and in audio at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and any online book retailer you prefer. Check out Drive Your Career today. Our podcast today is sponsored by Cabot Risk Strategies. Based in Woburn, Massachusetts, Cabot Risk Strategies has created innovative and customized insurance strategies for individuals and families, businesses, nonprofits, commercial real estate, and public entities. Cabot's client base continues to expand both within the region and within the markets they serve. And if you are looking for customized insurance services and solutions, contact Cabot at 800-222-5963 or visit them for more information at cabotrisk.com. I'm really, really excited to introduce our guest today. Richard Boyatzis is the Distinguished University Professor of Case Western Reserve University and Professor in the Departments of Organizational Behavior, Psychology, and Cognitive Science. He has a BS in Aeronautics and Astronautics from MIT and an MS and PhD in Social Psychology from Harvard University. Using his intentional change theory, he studies sustained, desired change at all levels of human endeavor, from individual to countries change. He began research on helping and coaching in 1967 and began coaching executives in 1969. About 30 years ago, he launched a series of longitudinal studies on coaching, followed by three functional magnetic resonance imaging and two hormonal studies of coaching processes that are more effective in helping people be open to change than other typical approaches. Based on his work begun in 1970 as one of the founders of the competency movement in human resources, he has launched several landmark research studies on the competency of coaches that predict client change. Richard is also the author of more than 200 scholarly articles and 75 practitioner articles on leadership, competencies, emotional intelligence, competency development, coaching, neuroscience, and management education. Wow, that is quite the list. His Coursera Massive Open Online course on leadership, emotional intelligence, and coaching have over one and a half million visitors and has enrolled individuals from over 215 countries. His nine books include The Competent Manager, The International Bestseller Primal Leadership with Daniel Goleman and Annie McKee, Resonant Leadership with Annie McKee, and my new favorite book, Helping People Change, Coaching with Compassion for Lifelong Learning and Growth with Melvin Smith and Ellen Van Osten. He is a fellow of the Association, excuse me, he is a fellow of the Association of Psychological Science, the Society of Industrial and Organizational Psychology, and the American Psychological Association. Welcome, Richard. Thanks, Ed. I I, I could have spent uh, hours on your bio. (laughs) So it's so tiring. it's tiring listening to it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure you do many, many podcasts. Well, we are so. No, no. Thrilled. I meant. I meant it was tired. It's tiring because it just reminds me of all the different things I'm continuing doing. And, anyway, 
Well, we hope to hear about some of those today. I know our listeners are excited to have you as a guest and really to hear from you based on all the work that you've done, all of the people that you've met, all of the countries that you've worked in, some observations, reflections, and insights on bravery at work. But before we get there, as I mentioned, I just recently completed reading your book, Helping People Change, Coaching with Compassion for Lifelong Learning and Growth. And I'd love to ask you to tell us a little bit about what the catalyst was for writing that book. Because for me, it's a pivot point in coaching because it talks about moving from coaching from coaching for compliance to coaching for compassion, which is where I think most coaches want to go. Well, as you and I chatted about earlier, <clears throat> part of my passion has always been how do you help people either individually or in groups change? And that was the very first thing, piece of work in a course that converted me from my career in aerospace. I was designing control systems for interplanetary vehicles. And I'd come back from six months of doing it, bored out of my mind, looking for some inspiration. And I found a course in something that sounded like a lot of garbage, organizational psychology. But it, it the professor said no tests, so I signed up for the course. Uh, but the key was it was a study on helping, which, you know, I see coaching as all forms of helping. And that was 1967. So it's been at the heart of it. And being a psychotherapist in the 70s and also still doing a lot of coaching of executives and then eventually um, becoming a professor in 87, it became, it's always been a theme. I mean, I'm studying and looking at all parts of my intentional change theory, but what became really clear in the 90s was that our key relationships have so much to do in um, the technical term is mediating, but in transforming our capabilities. And um, we had just put primal leadership, you know, to bed and, and sent it off to Harvard Business Review for the publication. And one of my colleagues said, okay, what next? And I stopped and I paused and I realized that I was sitting on the answer all along because I've been training coaches for so many years, first at the consulting company, then at the university, that I said, you know, I think we should really, I think I really want to focus on this coaching part of it, what it's discovery five in my theory. And in the process, we began doing research on the exercise I do in the book. I've been doing it every talk. I've done it three times this week already <laughs> in various talks uh, of who helped you the most to draw out these kind of key moments. And what became clear as we started collecting data on it was that there was a key part of my theory that really helped clarify something. One issue is a lot of people think specific goals help. They don't really. They help in a latter stage, but they do in a kind of negative obligatory way that it became very clear to me that it was the energy that happens when people talk about their big picture, their vision, their purpose, that's really important. So I started studying that. And at the same time, it became clear to me because I'd done some physiological research when I was working with alcoholics that I had to get to the brain stuff. I couldn't just talk about it psychologically. So I started a series of studies with uh, several different colleagues, some at the Cleveland Clinic and uh, Anthony Jack, Tony Jack, a faculty member at Case doing fMRI studies. And we did three of them. And in the process, started really nailing this issue of 
30 minutes of talking about your dream opens people up, activates all the parts in the brain that you need to be open to new ideas and learning and other people like a coach. And when you ask people, how are they doing and what problems are they having? It goes the other way. So then one of the doctoral students did her thesis on an average 40-year-old, 49-year-old age uh, cohort of dentists and found something similar, that if you coach to the vision and dream versus coaching to the assessment, to the gaps, to the problems, you have these two very different states that people are in. Then Angela Passarelli got equipment and wired people up and had these things and found that vision can be exciting and set off the stress response in a way. But what happens that doesn't happen when you talk about results from 360s or problems is they bounce back right away and they have this um, reversal, which is key for parasympathetic. So in, 19, in I think it was in 2003 that Melvin Smith and I started talking and writing about coaching to this positive emotional attractor as the tipping point, you know, what tips you into being able to go to the next point in learning versus the negative. And that's when he and I thought we could label these two coaching with compassion versus coaching for compliance. Because at the heart of it, even though well-intended, whether a parent, a manager, a therapist, a cleric, when you are helping someone by guiding them, giving them tips, etc., giving them feedback, it all results in them feeling like you're jumping on them. And at some point, they end up feeling like you're being a helping bully. We got into trouble using the term compassion because, as you know, in the West and even in Buddhist philosophy, it means helping someone in pain. We decided to use the term based on Confucian philosophy of opening yourself up to others. So we can help somebody in pain, but it could also somebody help somebody who wants to grow. So the idea of these two alternatives kept resonating in the research. It, it's at the heart of um, the renewal or parasympathetic activation in your body versus stress. It's at the heart of what Tony Jack calls the empathic network, neural network versus the task positive or analytic. It's, it's at the heart of feeling positive versus negative. And what we were showing was you need both in any coaching process, in any live uh, experience, but you need to start on the positive. You need to start in the uh, what we call with compassion, caring about the other person's dreams, not your dreams for them, but their dreams for themselves. Well, three things that you mentioned, uh, Richard, that I'd like to go back to. If we could do an autopsy for a moment on the word change, you said that you know one of your goals or one of the objectives is to help people change. And of course, culturally, change has been identified and maybe accurately or maybe inaccurately is hard to do or people don't like change. So, you know, what do you, you know, I tend to use the word evolve for people because it tends to honor the past and helps them look at things a little bit differently. I'm just curious, and I don't want to over deep, deep dive on it, but, you know, what does the word change mean to you or how do you use it or what do you think about well, it's a very good question because I, what I mean is change moving closer to your ideal, to your dream, to the way you would like to be acting, to the person you want to be, to your life, your family, your organization, your country. 
Sometimes it doesn't involve change in your behavior. Sometimes it involves change in your thoughts or feelings. And sometimes it doesn't even involve change, but affirmation. Hey, I'm on the right path. So change can be a little bit of an overstatement. But the reason I would not use evolve is evolve invokes a notion of something that gradually emerges. And my theory, I've been saying this since the 70s, basically says that sustained desire change almost always happens discontinuously. It happens through these abrupt moments of conscious awareness or discovery or what's called in complexity emergence. And those often feel chaotic or random, although they're not. And it's almost always, again, nonlinear. So um, it for many people, key moments of change feel more like revolutionary blasts than evolutionary. Uh, now, I, I think you're right in the sense that nobody should aspire to a whole transformation. It's not like Superman running into the telephone booth, spinning around, or Wonder Woman, uh, and all of a sudden coming out the super figure. Very often it involves a burst of insight and then a whole lot of hard work to get there. You were correct with your first, your first statement. Any degree of change or any degree of learning involves a lot of self-control, which in itself stimulates the stress system, which then leads to both cognitive and perceptual and emotional impairment. So what we're always fighting with is this back and forth. How can you refill your energy reservoir, if you will, and your commitment while the effort of practicing or trying to make a change is draining it? It's deflating in some ways. Fantastic observations, and it's something I think we'll all continue to think about, which is uh, the the notion of change and it not being like a superhero in a phone booth doing something in an instant, but it requiring time. And I've seen models that talk about change, and then there's a flattening where you are, where you are, and then there's another change. You know, it's kind of like a rose bush growing. You know, that type of perspective. So great, uh, great thought to share. Richard, the next point I wanted to think about is I think you made somewhat of a revolutionary type statement that goals don't help. And you know, another behavior that we get caught up in, and of course, you have heard the concept smart goals, which, you know, I wish I had a nickel or had uh, uh, certified that for you professionally because you'd be a billionaire by now because of how often it's used in the marketplace. So talk a little bit more as to what you mean about a goal not helping. This is an example of, you know, you, you, one of your major topics and themes is bravery. This is an example of, of bravery. One of my first publications in the field of psychology showed how setting goals will help you change your behavior. That was 1970. By the late 1990s, it dawned on me that that was only true for certain people. People with what Dave McCullen called high need for achievement, where unconsciously you always want to do better. Everything's a game. It's the kind of people who are great at sales, but they don't like working with other people. It's a lot of very individualistic. Those folks love specific goals because honestly, what they love is the game. They actually don't care about the clients. They don't care about the processes. They care about the measurement and the game. 
And even some of my doctoral students many decades ago showed that at most 25% of MBA graduates have a relatively high need for achievement. Most don't because it really gets in the way of being a good leader or professional or manager. The key that we discovered, that I discovered, was that it really was vision or dream or sense of purpose, the big picture, the context. Goals, I think, have a very useful purpose. So what I, I think what I meant to say was goals are not helpful at the beginning of the process. Um, because once you start down the path of goals, you put yourself into having to prove that you can reach them. And there's a 30-year history in psychology of people studying this goal orientation, and it's not even me doing it, showing that a proving orientation leads to less performance. It certainly leads to less sustained change. So what I've, what I've been saying, and, and I've say, even said a number of documents, and I think in the book that you were so nicely uh, endorsing, you're helping people change. We said, you want to open with getting to people's vision and purpose, their big picture. Once you get that, you help a person articulate that or affirm it if they already have it, make it comprehensive. So it's not just work, it's life, it's physical health, romantic health, spiritual health, it's all of it. Then the question ends up being, what is your capability like? What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? And that's where um, I always say you want to focus on the strengths because they're going to get you there, but you often have to work on a weakness. So to say you can only focus on strengths, to me, is really naive. You know, when somebody says that to me in Boston, I say, you know, you're smoking too much because, <laughs> uh, you know, it's uh, recreational use is legal and you get a contact high walking through the commons. But at any rate, here's the key is that once you know that there is something you want to work on or for folks over 40, very often a key part of their vision requires them to readjust their uh, their balance, work-life balance, uh, their asset allocation, will you, if you will, between their family and, and their work. And when they have any one of those aspirations, it is useful for them to then convert it into a goal. But if you do that too soon, you literally stop the change process. It's like New Year's Eve resolutions. Yeah, we want to exercise, people sign up for the gym. I mean, I was, and one of the webinars I was doing just this week, we were talking about this and some of the people said, yeah, you know, I wanted to, you know, get fit and lose weight and I signed up for a gym and, you know, before before Christmas and I've already stopped going. <laughs> it's not even the, you know. Happens the, to the best of us. Yeah, right. So, so it's a correct thing to say is it's not that goals aren't useful, but they're useful much later in the process and they have to be approached with caution. Uh, I mean, I, I've spent a lot of time trying to squeeze the SMART goal orientation out of doctoral students and executives that I'm working with and training because everybody keeps thinking if you're more specific, it's more motivating. It's not. And the key that I'm focusing on here is sustaining the effort because of what we just said before. It takes work. If you don't feel replenished, if you don't have that reservoir refilled, um, what ends up happening is you work on it, but because it's obligatory, the effort burns out. And that, that's where, again, the 
you know, your concept bravery, I think, comes in because people need to be bold enough and they need to be courageous enough uh, to articulate a vision. I mean, there are a lot of people who are so scared that they don't want to, where they say to me, and I don't want to think about my desired future because they'll jinx it. It's just a stupid idea. I mean, excuse me. If you don't think about it, you're never going to get there. Um, so th the question is, can people act with bravery about their own lives? And then again, it comes in when you're talking about looking at your strengths or your weaknesses. Um, it, as a coach, you know, we are spending a lot of time overreacting. I mean, sorry, compensating for the overreaction at work towards focusing on weaknesses. You know, when, what I used to say when I was training coaches a lot, I'd say, if you only had an hour to coach somebody, I mean, nobody does, but if you only did spend 30 minutes on the vision, 20 minutes on the strengths, five minutes on the weaknesses and five minutes on the plan. Uh, that's about where I think the proportion of energy, you know, and you keep recycling. Uh, but a person needs to be able to, needs the courage to acknowledge strengths. It's not arrogance. It's not narcissism if you have a pattern of behavior that works, that are the, make other people excited to be around you, that get results. And I don't think um, there are a lot of people who end up thinking, well, that's not being humble enough. Humility has to have some basis in reality. False humility is as foolish and as wasteful as arrogance. Um, so uh, that's another place where a person needs to commit to an act of bravery or personal courage. We're going to pause in our conversation with Richard Boyatzis and ask that you join us for our next podcast presentation, where we will continue to have a conversation with Richard about bravery at work. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us today, and we hope you join us on our next podcast conversation as we further explore being brave at work. We also remind you to subscribe to our podcast at BeBraveAtWork.com and our download and listen to our podcast on multiple online platforms. We are everywhere. Our podcast today was sponsored by Cap at Risk Strategies, whom you can reach at 800-222-5963 or visit them for more information at CapAtRisk.com. And a reminder to check out my new book, Drive Your Career, Nine High-Impact Ways to Take Responsibility for your own success, which is available in paperback, on Kindle, and in audio everywhere online. Do you have something to say, yet are not saying it? Do you have something to do, yet are not doing it? Now is the time to be brave at work. Have a great week.